You know, uh, there is a need for us to have a voice from the outside to help guide our conscience. We all need a voice from outside of us. Think about that. What does that say about human experience and about reality itself? What's really good and right and true? The fact that we need a voice outside of us, not just at five, and you know this, your whole life through. We need a voice of authority, accountability outside of us. You know, for many, many years, for centuries, really, uh, we understood, the philosophers always thought that there were three ways that we know something, three places of authority, reason, experience, and revelation. Harvard's seal, Harvard University's seal, has three books, and truth is broken up into veritas. Veritas is the word for truth in Latin, and it has three books, and it has veritas over each of the three books. And this is a symbol for reason, experience, and revelation because two of the books are open so you can read them and the one is closed so you see the spine of it. There's certain mystery to it, right? Revelation comes to us and there's a certain mystery to it. And somewhere in, uh, along its, its history, sometime during the fundamentalist modernist debate, I suspect, they changed their logo and flipped that book over so that there's no longer a symbol for revelation. Just reason experience to guide our conscience. No authority, no voice outside of us to guide us. This is exactly the story of Israel through 40 years of wandering in the desert and even beyond into the period of the settling of Canaan and the period of the judges and the period of the kings. Israel is under the authority of God and blessed and there is order there and there is peace and there is, there is a sense of, of a purpose and direction. And then they will leave that authority and become their own authority. At one point it says, um, it says, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's not a good thing. No voice of unifying authority outside of us. We need that voice. We're in a period of our country's history and phase of life when when we, we've bought into German romanticism again and Scottish rationalism, where the philosophy and the order of the day is simply reason and experience, but not revelation. Today, what I want to show you is not only that we need this voice, not only do we need revelation, we need a voice outside of us as an authority, but we can trust the scriptures as reliable as a reliable authority. God reveals himself through the scriptures, and we can trust it. From the word of God, Paul's letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, his more personal pastoral letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 10. 2 Timothy 3, starting with verse 10. Hear God's word this morning. 
You, however, have followed my teaching. He's speaking to Timothy. You followed my teaching. Not only that, Paul says, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, Paul says to Timothy, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on, go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred, sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. May God add his blessing today to us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. God, bless us today through your word, not only to our minds to understand it, but to our hearts to receive it, that through our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. I, uh, I realized from the early service that I have packed way too much in here, so I'm going to make things really simple and straightforward to you. This is what I want to tell you today. I want to tell you that the scriptures are reliable, a reliable source of authority for you and for me and for all the world because they are God-breathed, inspired. They are inspired to real people, real life events, and reality itself. That's it. Real people, real life events, and reality it itself. I'm going to show you right now. First of all, I want to tell you this quick little fact. Stephen Sample, who is the the president of University of Southern California for many years said this, if, if there's a book that's still in print 50 years after it's published and still widely, widely read, then that is a major lifetime achievement. 50 years later, a major lifetime achievement. If there's a book or a manuscript or some publication that's still circulated and widely read 400 years later, it's what Stephen Sample calls a super text. There are not many of those. A super text. We have a lot of ancient manuscripts. Julius Caesar, for example, we've got a couple of thousand um, manuscripts uh, that, that, that show what Julius, with the text, the ancient manuscript of of, uh, of Julius Caesar, what the original author said. We have thousands upon thousands of New Testament manuscripts that bear witness, that are accountable, that, that help us understand what the original autographs said. And so this morning, let's take a look at, at how the inspiration of Scripture works to people about events and about reality itself. First of all, people. 
God breathes inspiration, not just inspiring words, but he inspires the person who writes what has been seen. These are eyewitnesses that are inspired by the Holy Spirit to capture human history and a particular part of human history where God enters creation. We understand this not as, as, as that they were puppets, but the idea, the, the word is plenary, plenary inspiration, that the full person, all their personality, that all, all that they are is borne out within their writing. So you see, uh, even in the way that Peter writes, it's kind of clunky, like a, I mean, just, a, you know, just all his enthusiasm and passion as a fisherman, and you see the, the, the painstaking clarity and, and careful scholarship of Dr. Luke, right? And, and, and so you see that, that God is inspiring real people, real people, as his mouthpiece to capture what they, the eyewitnesses, saw. In some cases, they're directly writing themselves. In some other cases, like uh, for Peter, sometimes Mark, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, Mark is writing what Peter is saying. Luke has looked into it and was living at the time of the eyewitnesses. And so you can see these are real people. Now, now sometimes what, what people will object to is they'll say, well, there are all these contradictions in scriptures. There are all these contradictions. And that, that, that they'll say this and, and not necessarily give examples. So people will just sort of spray that at you and say, well, what about all the contradictions in scripture? And you know, more often than not, when I say, well, name one. Tell me, wh which one? Which one, what, what's, what's a contradiction? Let's look at a contradiction. More often than not, if somebody has one, these aren't contradictions. They're variations. They're variations. So when, um, when Matthew says that, um, that Mary and Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and they saw such and such, right? And then Luke comes later and he says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the other Mary, and several other people, several other women, people will cite that as a contradiction, as though the Gospels are saying two different things and, and that we can't rely on them. But imagine this. Imagine that, that you're sitting in your house and, and two boys come in that, that and let's just say these are your boys and they, they're brothers and they come in and, and Matthew and Luke come in and they say, Matthew and Luke, um, Matthew and Luke say, hey, there was this car crash. We were out there playing on the street, and it was amazing. It was terrible, but everybody's okay. And uh, one car bumped into the other car, and we were standing there. We were just, we were playing, uh, you know, we were playing, uh, you know, handball. You know, just kind of hitting the ball back and forth. And then later on, uh, a police officer comes and says, hey, what, boys, I want you to tell me what you saw. And the parents are listening in, and the boys say, yeah, we were out there. Um, they, we were out there playing handball, and uh, a couple of our neighbors, uh, Joey and Jeff, they were, they were with us. Well, that's a more thorough account. Well, that's exactly what you see when Luke, who wasn't an eyewitness himself, but was talking to the eyewitnesses, that's exactly what you'd expect somebody to say, okay, I, I'm not so much emotionally involved, so where, whereas, whereas Matthew was an eyewitness, and he was dealing with Mary Magdalene and Mary himself, he's going to have this um, this perspective, this emotional punch, and, 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 and for them to come running back and, and to say, uh, to be in the moment and to know exactly what happened there, and for Mary and Mary Magdalene to, to, uh, to, to express that to Matthew, Matthew, of course, is going to put his own emphasis on this and really reflect 
uh, what the Old Testament says is that two or three witnesses need to, to, to bear witness to something for accountability. And whereas Luke is looking, as he, he says to, to Theophilus at the be, at beginning, sort of the preamble to Luke, he says, I've done a thorough account. I've, I've looked deeply into these things. And, I, and, and so the way that Luke writes is often as somebody who is, is trying to be thorough and not necessarily putting an emphasis on the emotion and punch of the moment. His relationship, Matthew's relationship to Mary and Mary Magdalene, bear out that, that of course, he would be speaking about what they were saying and his relationship to those two. It's a variation. And because of the way that, that, that we see, now, last week at, at the end of the service, um, uh, Marshall Dentalway came out and he said, one of my professors said to me when I was uh, in medical school, he said, all of us, every one of us, takes has a, like a camera and we take pictures every one of us takes a picture from a little different angle we can be taking pictures of the same thing but every one of us takes a picture from a little different angle i love that that image because it fits right with this lens series this is brilliant that that the the inspiration of scripture would help us to see that these are authentic accounts. Because these are people who didn't get together and say, okay, let's harmonize our account. Let's get to make sure that everything's just right. It never smacks of people trying to uh, get their story straight. It smacks of people saying, this is my angle on it. This is how it happened for me. This is who I am in the middle of what happens. And God's dynamic nature and will is able to, to speak inspiringly through a variety of sources that when you read them and you peel back the layers and you see them you don't lose confidence you gain confidence that these are people speaking with authenticity with authenticity so first of all Scripture is inspired because God is speaking through real people, through real-life situations, and it always rings true. The deeper you look into it, the more it rings true. Second, it's inspired real events through real events that God is working through history, not just through words. God is working through events, through action, through what's happening in history. And, and these are people who are, who are making an account of things that happened. It's so much easier to, to talk about things that happened, isn't it? I mean, when you sit down on a plane, sometimes I, I can remember what somebody does and I can get a picture of what they do, right? Oh, they're a lawyer. But I can't necessarily remember their name. Names are so hard to remember. Accounts are so easy, easy to remember. How do we know that, that what's recorded in Scripture is accurate about what happened during the times? How do we know that it wasn't just a sort of legend that developed over time? How do we know that, that, and this is one of the criticisms, that, that, um, that many of the manuscripts uh, that we have don't date all the way back to the first century. But in fact, more recently, we found a, a, a partial manuscript that does date back close to the very first, first century. You see, for, for, for many years, for many decades, starting about 1920, 1930, uh, 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 German, German scholasticism began to influence our academy, that is, our universities and seminaries. 
A guy named Boltmann, Rudolf Boltmann, didn't believe in miracles. And so the way he looked at the scriptures was to read, uh, to, to, to come up with what it was plausible, a plausible reason why there might be miracles in these scriptures. Uh, Boltmann was the head of a school in Germany called Tübingen, and one of my professors at Gordon-Conwell went to Tübingen and, uh, and, and studied all of the history of, and, 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 and these days, uh, if you go to seminary, if you go to, to uh, divinity school, you're going to learn this form of criticism that, that stems back to the German Tübingen school of form criticism, redactive criticism, and, and literary criticism. And so uh, um, the modern sciences began to influence the way we, we read and interpret scriptures. But what happens is, is that the bias that somebody like a Boltmann believes, who before looking at the evidence, before looking at the scriptures, he has a bias that there was no miracle possible because he doesn't see any miracles today. And so he's trying to figure out what is a plausible reason. And more, so, so for decades, the plausible reason why um, miracles were in there was that this was legend and it developed over the centuries. That has been completely and entirely debunked. And yet, you don't hear people talking about it. In fact, there's a guy named Bart Ehrlman at uh, University of North Carolina who continues to use this old, worn-out illustration that has no bearing on how the manuscripts and these letters and, and these gospels were actually captured. It's the old illustration about telephone. When you tell somebody a whisper and it goes around the circle and it, when it comes all the way around the circle, you whisper it in one ear and that person whispers it in somebody's ear and that person all the way around the circle. And the original thing that you whisper, it comes all the way around and it's so contorted, it doesn't even sound like the first thing. And that's even somebody like Bart Ehrlman who, who, is, at, uh, who is at University of North Carolina, uh, endowed chair at, at, uh, in the divinity school there. He would use that to explain how these scriptures had miracles in them. <laughs> and yet, I mean, he's really about three or four decades behind scholarship. And in fact, scholarship has been about 2,000 years behind the scriptures. You see, what we discover, and I, I, was, I was reading this book, I've been reading a, a whole stack of books for this sermon, that's why the, there's been a problem with the sermon, is that I've got too much to tell you. But I do want to let you in behind the curtain of what I'm talking about here. So a minute ago I said, you know when you're on a plane you can remember what somebody does, but it's hard to remember their name, right? Well, there was a study uh, over the last decade of all the names that have been unearthed uh, through archaeology, about 3,000 names that date back to the time that Jesus was, was alive. 3,000 names within uh, Jewish Palestine. Okay? So we now have a statistical analysis of the names in Jewish Palestine. Now, do you know what the most popular name is today in New York City? To name, if you had a baby in New York City... Or if you were walking down the street and you saw a bunch of baby carriages with, uh, with Skylar and Dory or whatever, and, and, and you, 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 would, you would, do you know what, you know, if you saw a boy, what the most popular boy name is today? No, you don't. Neither do I. Think of how much harder it is in that day and age when you can't look it up on, on Google, right? So I looked it up, and the most popular name today for boys in New York City is Michael. Michael. 
Do you know what the most popular name is uh, in, uh, I- for boys in, um, in Los Angeles? No, you don't. No, and neither do I. Uh, but, but I can tell you this. Michael is not on the top ten. You see, regionally, it, it really makes it, and it's always been this way. And so, but what would you imagine that if somebody were, were sort of creating these stories centuries later, how close do you think they would get to, to the names in Jewish Palestine? There are hundreds of names in here. And you know, when you do a statistical analysis of all the names in the New Testament, and you put it side by side with the archaeological evidence uh, of the statistical names, by the way, the, the most popular name during this, that period of time was Simon, right? And so uh, when you put them side by side, they are almost identical, statistically identical, unbelievable. You don't even have to believe it because there it is. You see, the more we look into this, the more we realize we're, we're 2,000 years behind the scriptures. We, we, we take our own disbelief and we read into the scriptures. We take our own sense of, of modern arrogance and pride and we read it back into the scriptures and we try to come up with something plausible to make it sort of harmonize with today. But we don't know everything. We don't even fully know how an atom works and that we, we act like we do. We don't even know the origins of, of where we've all come from, and, and yet we act like we do. We, 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 we wield information with pride and as a weapon, and what we need is an authority. What we need is to have our lens clarified. What we need is somebody to come alongside us and say, you know what, it's not a good thing to steal money. <laughs> I know, you know, maybe you didn't think it was stealing, but in this case, you know, you just don't understand what's going on, and and that voice comes to us from the outside. Paul is saying that to Timothy. He's saying, look, you know the way I've been living. You know the way I've been living. You, you know that the things I'm saying is m- matching up. And, and if it weren't true, what Paul is saying to Timothy, he's pointing Timothy to the evidence of his life, the, the risks he's taken, the ways he's been persecuted for the gospel. If it weren't true, this whole thing, this whole letter would not have been preserved. The whole argument to Timothy would have fallen apart. And Paul would have been a joke. You see, what Paul was demonstrating is that he is under the authority of these scriptures. He's under the authority uh, when he's referring to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures and the Gospels. And it is shaping his life. And he's training someone up behind him. You know, another bit of evidence that we can look to when you think about the credibility of Scripture is simply the fact that Jesus was a genius. Amazing. When you point to the Gospels, you're pointing to Jesus' teaching. You're pointing to people who followed in his footsteps. And you know that Jesus, uh, you know, people, when, when you ask around the world, east to west, when people, when you ask, what is the highest ethical standard? If you were to get a bunch of people in the room for all around the world, what is the highest, if you were to say in one, one sentence, what's the highest ethical standard? If you could only teach one thing to your son or daughter and then you, you were taken away or, or you were on a desert island and you could say only one thing, one thing to those people, what would you say? What about Jesus' golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What does Jesus say when, he, when, he, when, when someone tries to trap him? What's the, what's the law? What's the most important commandment? Love God and love others. 
He sums up the Ten Commandments, sums up the 613 commandments. It's amazing. And, 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 and Jesus has been the inspiration for Tolstoy in Russia. He's been the inspiration for the entire Western movement. You are saturated in this supertext, whether you know it or not. Our culture, our very language has been shaped by the scriptures. The way we say things, the way we think, the categories in which we think have been shaped by the scriptures. You know, the, the movement, uh, the peace movement, peaceful um, reaction to Brit Britain in, um, in India that was led by Gandhi was inspired by the Sermon on the Mount. You, time and time again, what people see is that there's a reason why these scriptures endure. There's a reason why, and it's my third point. Because they match up with what's really real. They match up with what is good and right and true. They've been tested and tested and tried. That's why I keep saying, I'm going to say it almost every week, that sometimes we have to live them forward and love them backwards. They've been tried and they have been found true. You say, well, why doesn't God just tell us that we have to believe him or just like write it in an earthquake or in lightning bolt or something like that? Why does he, why does he, why does he speak to us in such a whisper through the scriptures like this? Well, earlier you heard in 1 Kings 19 an account of Elijah experiencing the presence of God and how God passed by as an earthquake and he passed by as a, as a, a violent wind and he passed by as fire, but he wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire. He wasn't in the wind. He was in a whisper. He was in a still, small voice. Why does he speak to us this way? Let me explain why. I think he speaks to us this way. In a still, small voice. After 9-11-2001, I was at First Presbyterian Church Orlando. We could open the doors, tell people we were having a worship service, and the place would be packed Maybe you had your own experience. After 2001, people wanted to get together. They wanted to be in the church. They wanted a sense of comfort. They wanted a sense that the world wasn't completely falling apart. Everybody was scared. They were scared back in the church. <laughs> and God is saying to us, I don't want to scare you back in the church. I want to scare you the hell out of you. I want to speak to your will, not just your emotion. To eternity, speak you into eternity, not just into the moment or the season. God's still small voice is that voice of the Holy Spirit that tells us, look, the scriptures ring true. They ring true. The still small voice is the voice that comes to us when we spend time in the scriptures. The still small voice is the voice when Jesus says, let those who have ears, let them hear is the voice that finds us when we are truly seeking God and not just angry with him and trying to find a reason not to be under his authority. Are you with me? Are you following me? You see, the still small voice speaks to the willing soul, the soul that, that is responding to God. <laughs> That's why it only takes a mustard seed. That's why it only takes a whisper because somebody who, who is not putting up a stiff arm to God can hear his voice. You know, I, I've had many, many interns over the years, and one, one intern that I had um, long ago and far away, I won't even tell you what church this was. I know he, he's gone into academics, and this was a, a guy who, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time talking to him about his big questions. 
mostly listening. And I'm watching him take these turns, turn, turn, turn away from orthodoxy, turn away from his faith. He's angry. He's angry with the way the world is. He's angry with injustice. He's looking at the world through a lens at, uh, that, that says, things shouldn't be this way. Why does God allow things to keep going on like this? And he's coming back to the scriptures angry. And as a result, it affects the way he reads them. Brilliant guy, headed towards a- academics. And he said, well, Tim, what, what can we do about that? You know, when Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was this, uh, this defect, de- defector from, um, from Russia after um, Stalinist, out of Stalinist Russia, he was in the gulag, he was in the prison camps for many, many years, and he saw human life stripped down to its naked essentials, and, and, and people, their character, couldn't, they could not hide. People's character was exposed, and yet they were under this cloud of lie of deceit and he lived in that environment and so you come out of that and you have to heal up and you have to think what is going to bring me back to where i can trust people again and not look at people and wonder what kind of person would they be in that environment right the real self how do i trust people again and you know what he said he said this he said one word of truth outweighs the entire world one word of truth What he's saying is this, when people are speaking the truth, when it costs, ah, that that means everything. It means everything. You see, time and time again, you read the scriptures, even this passage this morning, it has this ring of truth to it. One word of truth in your life, even as a whisper can begin to outweigh all of the self-deceit of your life. The ways you've ordered things that have hurt you. Isn't it true that, that, that we end up hurting ourselves? I mean, that's what I want to say this intern is m- more often than not, you look at, at what's going on in the world, and yes, terrible things happen. Yes, there's tsunamis. Yes, there's violence in the world. But so often, we're our own worst enemy, and what we need is a voice of authority outside of us. So how do we deal with people who are stiff-arming God around us? How do we deal with adult children who've wandered from the faith? Or how do we deal with friends? Or like my example, this, this friend of mine who, who is straying. How do we deal with that? Well, recently, uh, Elizabeth Mitchum was just reading, a, she read this article from a guy named uh, Jim Burns, who's a youth ministry e- expert. And he's talking about dealing with adult children. He's talking about dealing with, with younger generations if you're an older generation. And he says this, he says this. He says, keep your mouth shut and your welcome mat out. Keep your mouth shut and your welcome mat out. That's the subtitle of his book. Still small voice. But God is so patient with us. He will continue to be patient with us as we, as we so often demand from him things that he's already given. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied when you move towards these scriptures, as a seeker, you will find. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your still small voice in our life that's so consuming and powerful. Help us, God. Though you are immortal and we are mortal, though you are visible 
and we are so enamored with what is visible. Though we are foolish and you are wise, God, you are so faithful to us. Help us to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen.